Amen. Good morning, family. It's amazing to think that the king of the universe, the one that truly is above all, became the lowest, beneath all, as he hung upon Calvary's cross for us. It's a, it's a truth that we all have heard before, but it should never cease to amaze us how he that is the highest went to the lowest to save us. Praise his name this morning. Amen. This morning's presentation is one that is very solemn in nature. It's a message that challenges us to make sure that we are filled with the fullness of Christ. And uh, we're going to pray and get into that, and so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray together. Thank you so much, dear Lord, for coming down, stepping into our darkness to bring us light and to bring us life. We thank you so much, Lord, that you, our precious King, came as a servant to serve your servants. Lord, we don't understand that, that love, we can't comprehend it fully. We thank you, Lord, that today we can experience it in our lives, that love that has the power to change us. Oh, Lord, we pray that as we open your word that our hearts and minds would, would be open to receive the message. Uh, we, we pray that you'd pre please encourage us, inspire us, motivate us, and challenge us, that we might come up higher in our walk. And I pray, dear Lord, that, that this room not would be filled with your spirit, but every room of our hearts and our lives will be filled with your spirit today. Please, Holy Spirit, fall upon us afresh. In Jesus' name, we pray this prayer. Amen. Amen. The peril of emptiness. I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to go to the fifth chapter. <clears throat> Matthew, actually we're going to go to the 12th chapter. Matthew chapter 12, where we find Jesus sharing a very solemn parable that will be the theme of the sermon this morning. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 42, actually 43. Notice what it says, Matthew 12 verse 43 if you're there and if you're ready to study the Bible, would you please say amen? <clears throat> the Bible says in Matthew 12 and verse 43, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, his, here's Jesus quoting the demon, then he says, I will return into my house from where I came out. And when he has come, that is when he comes back to that house, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Empty, swept, and garnished. Now this word garnished right here is a very interesting word. <clears throat> In the Greek, it's the word kosmeo. Can you see that? And that's the word by which we get the English word cosmetics. 
In other words, when the demon went back to the man that he had just been cast out of, he finds that this man was cleansed. He was emptied of evil. And he was garnished cosmeo. In other words, he was filled with cosmetics. He was colored up. Things were placed in order. But then notice in verse 45. Then he goes and takes with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so, Jesus makes the application, even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. In this solemn parable, Jesus is giving both an urgent invitation and a very serious and solemn warning. And the primary point of the parable is that it's not enough for us to be emptied of evil. We also must be filled in order to be fulfilled. We must be saturated by the Spirit in order to be satisfied with His salvation. In other words, Christianity is not about being emptied of wrong. It's about being filled with He who is right. A few years ago, I, with a few other missionaries, got the chance to board a plane that was heading to the Hindu and Muslim-saturated land and country of India. We were going there as missionaries to do a week of revival at one of our Adventist colleges in northern India, the Rudki, it's called. And uh, we went there to share the good news of Jesus, and it was wonderful. Uh, it was a beautiful experience. After the powerful week of revival, over 50 young people, many of them coming from Hindu and Muslim backgrounds, over 50 of them were baptized and accepted the Lord Jesus. And it was beautiful. Our primary reason for going there, of course, was to preach the gospel, but after the week of revival was finished, we had a few days to go sightseeing and be, be tourists. And uh, as we're preparing to go to India, there was a list of things I wanted to see before I came back to, to America, a list of things I wanted to experience. I wanted to ride a camel, and we got the chance to do that. I wanted to see a snake charmer as well, but unfortunately, he was out for the day. And I wanted to eat and eat and eat fine Indian vegetarian cuisine. And oh man, boy, was that wonderful. Every meal was a new experience. But at the top of my list of things I wanted to do, besides preach, of course, on the very top of my list that I wanted to do in India is I wanted to go and I wanted to see my palace, the Taj Mahal. <laughs> the word Taj means crown. The word mahal means palace. It's the crown palace. It's my palace, friends. <laughs> and so on our last day there, we got the chance to go to the Taj Mahal. It was wonderful. We drove all night long, and we were there in the morning. And uh, this was the building that my mother named me after. And so I was very excited. And, you know, this building, the Taj Mahal, is the great symbol of love in, in India. It was the Indian emperor, uh, uh, Shah Jahan, that actually built this mausoleum for, as a gift of love for his third wife. Now, I have to think about what his first two wives, how they felt about that, because they didn't get no mausoleum. <laughs> but he loved his third wife so much that he built this magnificent palace. And the Taj was to be her final resting place. You see, she passed away in giving birth to their 13th child. 
and she was buried there at the Taj Mahal. And later on, the king that built it would be buried there as well. And so with great eagerness and anticipation, I look forward to visiting the Crown Palace, the Taj Mahal. It's been called one of the seven wonders of the world, and it's the place that my beloved mother named me after. You see, friends, I'm not Indian, but when my mom was pregnant with me, she saw a poster of the Taj Mahal, and she said, wow, that sounds nice, and so here I am today. (laughs) Name me after this building. It means crown. And so we went into the Taj Mahal, we, 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 we went through the outer court, and when we, when we, when we, when, when we went in there, the first, thing, the, the first time I saw it, I was taken back by its beauty. It was so wonderful. How many of you have ever been there before? Can I see your hands? Have you ever seen the Taj Mahal? All right, a few people. Well, friends, everything was easy on the eyes. Let me, let me describe it for those who've never been there. The mausoleum is made primarily of translucent white marble that was shipped from all over Asia, causing the massive edifice to stand up and stand out amongst the smoke and smog-filled atmosphere of Agra there in India. When you enter into the outer gate, the first thing you see is a long rectangular pool that seems to prostrate itself before the Taj Mahal, reflecting its beautiful glory. There are intricate designs of orchids and roses and lilies and made of jasper and jade and crystal that are inlaid in the white marble walls. Very beautiful. The building itself is uh, surrounded by lush gardens and shady trees. In fact, everything is perfectly symmetrical. Everything. If you cut it down to the middle, perfectly symmetrical, even down to the design on the walls. History books tell us that it took over a thousand elephants to transport all the building materials, and it took over 20,000 laborers and sculptors and calligraphers and inlayers and stone cutters, over 20,000 of them. It took them over 20 years to complete the building, and no wonder why they call it the Crown Palace, one of the seven wonders of the world. And so I, I was looking at it. We took some pictures, and it was amazing. And after my initial amazement settled down, I was hit with an overwhelming object lesson when we went inside the building itself. You see, friends, the Taj is swept, swept clean every day by the janitors. In fact, before you can even enter into the building, you have to put these disposable socks over your shoes so that you don't bring any of your filth in the building. Not only that, but it's garnished with beautiful, intricate designs upon the walls, captivating to the eyes. But when you go in the building itself, the building is filled with a profound emptiness. It's swept, it's cleansed, it's garnished, but it's empty. There are no benches or chairs for anyone to sit down and rest. And there's no practical purpose for the empty space in the, there's no rooms. No one lives there. It's just empty space. And the beautiful building, the only thing that was inside, it was filled with the dry, dead bones of the king and his wife. It's a place that is filled with emptiness and death. Swept, cleansed, garnished, but empty. And many times when I hear my name called, I'm reminded about that spiritual truth I learned from my visit to the Taj that day. And that spiritual truth is simply this, friends. It's not enough for us to look good on the outside. It's not enough enough for us to be swept, cleansed, even on the inside. We must be filled in order to be fulfilled. 
We must be saturated with His presence, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, in order to be satisfied with the salvation of the Lord. And that, my friends, is the primary point that, the, that this parable is to teach us. The parable that Christ gives here in Matthew 12 is given just after he had freed a man that was possessed by demonic spirits. In fact, if you read verse 22, verse 22 tells us in Matthew 12, Then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb. And that, by the way, is always our condition before we come to Jesus. In control of Satan. Spiritually blind and spiritually dumb. But then the Bible says, and he healed him. Insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. And what Jesus did to this man physically, he desires to do for all of us spiritually. And when our eyes are open to truth, it's then our mouth will be open to proclaim that truth to the world. And so Jesus just heals this man that was de demon-possessed. And then after that, he gives this parable that we just read about a man that was swept cleansed of the devil, and he remained empty. And then the devil came back and filled him once again. And this, my friends, I believe is this parable was an urgent invitation to the man to make sure that he would go and get filled after he was emptied of evil. Now, I had never experienced demon possession. I'd never witnessed it personally myself until a few years ago, I got the chance to visit Africa. And we did some evangelistic meetings there in the country of Tanzania on the, on the border of, of, of the continent in a small town named Tanga. Now, Tanga was a, is a town that, whose population was 98% Muslim, and so it's Muslim territory. And we held multiple evangelistic meetings there in that town, and by that time the two weeks were finished, over 400 individuals were baptized in the Indian Ocean. Amen? <clears throat> there was a, it was a massive baptism, and we were there for hours, and I, I remember I was there at the shores, uh, right at, I had a front row seat. And I had my camera in my hand, I was taking the pictures, and it was beautiful seeing multitudes of people, hundreds of them, getting baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were only actually three pastors doing the baptism. So you can imagine three pastors with over 400 people, it took a few hours at least. And people started coming, and, 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 and there were hundreds of people on the shoreline watching this massive baptism. And uh, one of the individuals that came with us on this trip, one of the speakers, was a Filipino pastor from Southern California. His name is Pastor, pastor Issachar, and he was one of the three pastors in the waters doing the baptism. Now, as I mentioned, he was Filipino, but he wasn't a small and petite Filipino. He was large and in charge, and he had a deep, booming voice. You know, us Filipinos, we tend to be more small in stature, but this Filipino was large, and he was strong, and it had a deep, booming voice, and he was one of the ones doing the baptism, and all of a sudden, I saw a, a young, small, unassuming girl dressed in black enter the waters to be baptized, and she went to Pastor Garsula, and he brought her in the position to get baptized. He raised his hand, and he began to pray, and when he began to pray, that's when the demon manifested itself through this little girl. The little girl, her head rolled back in a very unnatural way. 
Her eyes uh, rolled back and she began to scream and shout and voices came out of her mouth and her body actually started to rise up out of the water. Now, Pastor Garcula from the United States, you know, he didn't know what, he never experienced this before himself. He didn't really know what to do. And so what he did was this. He tightened his grip on that girl. He planted his feet. He finished his prayer. And then he decided to finish what he started with what might be one of the first ever slam dunk baptism. <laughs> just grabbed her and just slammed her in the water. <laughs> slam dunk. <laughs> and friends, you know, I, I was witnessing this. I was shocked. And I caught all of this. I got pictures of all this. He slammed her in the water, and then when she came back up, there was a great calm, and the people began to rejoice. Amen? Amen. But as I looked around, I was shocked. But it was amazing that no one uh, seemed to be bothered by what they saw at all. In other words, this demonic demonstration did not disturb the others like it disturbed me. And friends, the reason why they told me is because in Africa, in that part of the world, they see those type of demonic demonstrations all the time. And so they're used to seeing the flailing and the screaming and the voices. They're used to it. And so it doesn't shock them like it would someone like me who had never seen that before. And friends, the reason why it's shocking to us if we're ever to see that is because here in, our, in the Western part of the world, in our sophisticated Western society, demon possession appears in very different types of forms. I believe, friends, that many cases of schizophrenia and other mental disorders are forms of demonic possession. Now, sure, there are chemical imbalances in the brain, but many of it is simply attacks by Satan. Alcoholism and other paralyzing addictions is a form of demonic possession. Uncontrollable rage is a a form of demonic possession. All-consuming bitterness, an unforgiving spirit, unwarranted fear, sexual perversion, blind negativity, depression and discouragement and despair, low self-esteem, suicidal thoughts, these are all forms of demonic possession. Even spiritual indifference is a form of it. And some might be asking, well, how could you say that that's demonic possession? Well, friends, it's very simple. All of those things I just listed are not of God. It is of the devil. The Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. These things, negativity, rage, unforgiving spirit, alcoholism, and drugs, this is of the devil. And it's the way that Satan comes to control people, and that's what possession means. The word possession simply means to come in and control. Isn't that right? And Satan uses these things to control individuals' lives. These are all forms of demonic possession. It's the way that Satan breaches our hearts and comes to control our lives now friends think about it just like in africa most people in africa do not respond and get too worried about the demonic demonstrations of flailing and screaming and 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 voices because they're used to it in the same way here in america we don't really respond to the bitterness and the negativity and the rage and and alcoholism we don't really uh, react to it because we're used to seeing those things in this part of the world And so, unfortunately, demonic possession has become normal for many people in the world. 
But this man, who was filled with the devil, had an encounter with the divine exorcist, and he was made free because God is stronger than the enemy. Can you say amen? But I want us to notice, what was he freed from specifically? We know that it was a demon, but what kind of de demon was in this man? Notice, let's read it again in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43. Matthew 12, 43, it says, when the what kind of spirit? <clears throat> the what kind of spirit? The, so the first thing we know about this spirit is that, number one, it's an unclean spirit. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walks through dry places seeking, what is he seeking? Rest and finds none. And so the second thing we know is that this spirit is a restless spirit. Unclean and restless. And I want to submit to us, friends, that those two things go hand in hand. Because restlessness leads to uncleanliness. And friends, that's the that's the condition of most people in the world today. We live in a very restless world. So many people, especially young people, are consumed by media because they're restless for auto, auto and visual stimulation. Others who are distracted by relationships that they're not yet ready for, they are restless for companionship. Others are addicted to social media. They're restless for connection and recognition. Others who are burdened by trying to live up to the expectation of others, they are restless for approval. People who are so exhausted by busyness, trying to make a living, they're restless for survival. Others who are confused by the hypocrisy they see in the church, they are restless for authenticity. Others who are contaminated by guilt and fear, they're restless for forgiveness. People who are enslaved, enslaved to other people's perceptions concerning them, their own reputation. They are restless for acceptance. Others who are crushed by internal insecurities, they're restless for self-value. People who are disillusioned by the shallowness of life, they are restless for meaning and purpose. You see, friends, restlessness is a form of demonic possession. It is an indicator that the devil has come into your life and he's seeking to control you. And your thoughts, your feelings, and your decisions. And friends, the reason why the human heart is naturally so restless is because there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. And we try to fill it with things that cannot fill it. And so we're constantly restless. We fill the emptiness within with the pleasures and the stimulations of sin, but it never satisfies and so we're always restless, always searching for something more and more. And like I quoted from C.S. Lewis the other night, he said that if I find myself, if I find in myself desires in which nothing in this world could satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's the truth, friends. In our hearts, we have desires that God has placed within us. Desires for things that this world can't satisfy. And why? Because he's the only one that can satisfy it. And when we don't realize that, we are restless. And even people who have it all, without Christ, they're restless. Michael Jordan arguably is 
the greatest basketball player that has ever lived. And when you think about Michael Jordan, I read, I, read an, I read an article concerning him not long ago, and it talked about just how much he has and how he feels about it. I mean, Michael Jordan, in the eyes of the world, he has it all. He has fame and fortune, everything that money could buy. He is sitting on a billion-dollar icon, which is himself, friends. He not only owns the icon, he is the icon. He has respect and success. He has a supermodel wife, mansions all over the world, private jets, anything you could ever desire, he has, but he was quoted recently in saying, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? And then he said, I would give anything to go back and play the game of basketball. Even an individual like Michael Jordan is restless. Why? Because again, there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart, an eternal space that can only be filled by one who is eternal in nature. And because everything in this world is temporal, that temporal cannot fill the eternal space. Only God can fill it. And that's the reason why I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. In fact, you're right there. In chapter 12, let's go back to chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and notice what Jesus promised us. You see, he promised to give us rest. Without Christ, our life is a never-ending pursuit of rest. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you burdened? Is there a weight on your shoulders? Are you restless? Jesus invites you to come just as you are, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, my friend, hear and heed the words of Jesus today. You who are restless, he invites you to come and lay those heavy burdens at his feet. He's the only one that can give you rest. Without Jesus, our life is a never-ending pursuit of rest. And we will never find it until we come to know Jesus. But I want you to notice in this passage, <clears throat> more than just inviting us to lay down our burdens, he also invites us to take up his yoke. And the reason why, friends, is, is because it's not enough for us to be emptied of those burdens. We must be filled with Christ's rest. What happens if we remain cleansed but empty? Verse 44 of Matthew 12. Let's go back and read what happens. Verse 44, Jesus here quotes the demon that had just been kicked out of the man. Verse 44, then he says, here's the demon speaking, I will what? I'll return into whose house? You see, the devil still claims us as his own. We are his property, so he thinks. And he says, I'm going to go back to my house from where I came out. And when he comes, he finds it. He finds that man emptied and swept and garnished. Again, that's the word cosmeo. It means to put in order, to be embellished, to be adorned, to be colored up. 
and we find that Satan still claims us as his house. He does not easily give up on his prey. And we see something very interesting here, and that is this. Satan does not mind if we are emptied and swept and garnished. He doesn't mind that as long as we're not filled. As long as we're not filled. One of the most amazing inventions, in my opinion, is the vacuum cleaner. I love the vacuum cleaner because I hate dust and dirt. I'm one of the, my wife says I'm, sometimes I'm OCD, <laughs> always cleaning stuff. I love living in a clean area, and I love that vacuum cleaner. I, I invested a lot of money in, in a very nice vacuum cleaner that doesn't have a bag, and you just, it's wonderful. And, and, and the thing I, I learned about a vacuum cleaner is that the motor in the vacuum does not work to pick up dirt. But rather, the reason why vacuum cleaner is so effective is because the motor works by forcing air out of the bag or out of the machine. And as air is driven out, it creates a vacuum. And friends, what is a vacuum? It's simply a void or an emptiness. And this emptiness then creates suction that as a result picks up dirt and dust and debris. Here's the point, friends. An empty bag picks up dirt and dust and debris. Do you understand? In other words, the devil doesn't mind if you're empty as long as you're not filled with Christ. He doesn't mind if you stop going to the clubs and parties as long as you stay away from prayer meeting and church. The devil does not mind if you even go to church as long as you fall asleep or get distracted during the sermon. And so if someone next to you is falling asleep, nudge them and say, now's the time to wake up, my brother or sister. Amen. <laughs> the devil doesn't even mind if you stay awake in church. He doesn't mind if you pay attention to the sermon as long as you forget it on your way out of the church. And I, I suppose he doesn't mind if you remember the sermon as long as you are afraid to share it with your neighbors. The devil doesn't mind if you give up worldly music or entertainment as long as you do not pray and study the Bible. He doesn't mind if you go to a Christian college as long as you stay away from spiritual people. He doesn't mind if you stop lying as long as you are afraid to tell the truth. You see, friends, here's the point of the parable. It's not enough to say, I no longer go to the clubs and concerts. What we need to say is, I love going to the house of God to worship my Creator and my Savior. For I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. For in thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That should be our testimony, friends. That's what we ought to say. It's not enough to say, oh, I no longer eat unclean meats. What we need to say is I love eating healthfully because my body is the temple of God. And therefore, whatever I eat or drink and whatever I do, I want to do it all to the glory of my God. That's what we should say. It's not enough to say that I no longer gamble or waste my money on foolish things. What we need to say is I love returning my tithes and offerings to the Lord. He has blessed me so much, and I want to give back to Him, and I can never outgive my God who gave His life for me. That's what we ought to say. It's not enough to say that I no longer listen to worldly music. What we need to say is I enjoy singing and listening to spiritual songs because God has put a new song in my mouth. And one day I'm going to sing that new song on the sea of glass with palm branches of victory in my hand. That's what we ought to say. It's not enough to say that I no longer watch sinful TV programs. 
what we need to say is, oh, how I love thy word. It is my meditation all the day. And I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's what we ought to say. It's not enough to say, oh, I no longer lie anymore. What we need to say is I love telling the truth and sharing the truth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. That should be our testimony. Amen. It's not enough to say that I no longer gossip and talk about others behind their back. What we need to say is, I pray for my enemies as Jesus prays for me. For Christ said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's what we need to be saying, friends. Not enough to be emptied of wrong. We must be filled with right. It's not enough to say, oh, I no longer wear immodest, revealing clothing. What we need to say is I'm covered by the robe of Christ's righteousness, and he has covered me with that garment, and I would love to wear his clothes. It's not enough to say that, that, that I've been helping out with the evangelistic meetings during the three weeks. What we need to say is I, I want God to use me for the rest of my life. I'm sold out for Christ, and I've placed my hand on the gospel plow, and I'm going to move forward, and I'm not turning back. That's what God likes to hear. It's not enough for us to say I've been justified by the blood of the Lamb. We also need to say, I am being sanctified by his indwelling spirit. It's not enough to say, oh, I've been swept, I've been cleansed, and I've been emptied. What we need to say is, I am being filled with his fullness, and that's what God gets excited about. You see, friends, Christianity is not about being emptied of wrong, but being filled with right. The Christian religion does not consist in refraining from evil, but rather applying the mind and the heart intelligently to the things of God, that which is good. Christianity is not a negative religion consisting in various prohibitions, but it's a positive religion offering something better for us. That's what I love about the Lord, friends. He never takes away something from us without replacing it with something that is far better. It's not enough to hate the evil. We must ardently love and cherish that which is good. I mean, when you think about it, you remember the, the parable of the man or the, the parable of the talents and how Jesus gave certain individuals different talents and there was one individual Christ gave one talent to. And that individual was cast out into the darkness. Do you know why? It's not because he sold his talent and bought a bottle of liquor. The reason why he was cast out is because he wrapped that talent in a napkin and did not do anything with it. He is lost, not because he did something wrong, but rather because he refused to do what is right. Remember the parable of the fig tree? Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered. Do you know why? It's not because the fig tree bore poisonous fruits, but rather because the fig tree bore no fruit at all. In other words, it, it wasn't doing something bad. It just wasn't doing anything. That's why it was cursed. How about the parable of the ten virgins and the five foolish virgins that were cast out? Friends, you know why those virgins were lost? It's not because they hated the bridegroom. In fact, they claimed to love the bridegroom, and they were waiting for the return of the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? <clears throat> Jesus. And who what do we call those people who are waiting for the return of Jesus? We, like, we have a fancy word we use to describe those people who are waiting for the second advent of Christ. We like to call them Adventists. And these five foolish Adventists were lost. Why? 
not because they hated the bridegroom, but because they had no oil. They were empty of the oil of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So you see that? It tells us not to do something, but then quickly it tells us to do something. Be not filled with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Again, the same point. It's not enough to not do wrong. We must do what is right. In James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, the Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then James 4, 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So we must resist the devil. Amen? But the greatest way we resist the devil is simply by drawing near to God. And God draws near to us. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 21, it says, Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, one of the greatest ways to overcome evil is simply to be filled with good. Instead of so much resisting evil and fighting against evil in, in our own strength and flesh, all we need to do is be filled with he who is good, friends. And that's the victory. I love what it says in the book, Desire of Ages. It's a powerful book on the life of Christ. And I want you to listen carefully to these words. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new possession, or excuse me, a new power takes possession of the new heart. What happens? When you surrender to Christ, a new power takes what? Possession, control of the new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. In other words, you can't do it. It is a supernatural work bringing a supernatural element into human nature. A soul thus kept in possession, in what? By the heavenly agencies is, listen to this word, is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. Did you catch that? A soul that is possessed with the Spirit of Christ becomes impregnable. What does that word impregnable mean? That means the devil cannot penetrate. He can't come in. No matter how hard he tries to attack you, you are fortified with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're impregnable. How many of you want to be impregnable to the assaults of Satan? Amen. Then it says, but unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. It is not necessary for us to deliberately to choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. We only have to neglect, what is that word? Neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. In other words, we don't have to consciously choose evil to be under its control. All we have to do is neglect to be under the control of God. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and make it his abiding place. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, and temptation to sin. We may leave off many bad habits and part companies with Satan for a season, but without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to Him moment by moment, we will be overcome. Without a personal acquaintance with Christ, 
We are at the mercy of the enemy, and we shall do his bidding in the end. And friends, that's the reason why it's so urgent for us to go and get filled, friends. Filled with that which is good, because notice in verse 45, notice what the devil does. So he goes, and then he comes back to the house to see what condition it's in. He finds it empty, swept, and garnished. And the devil does not enter into the house immediately, but notice what he does in verse 45. It says, then he goes and takes with himself, what? Seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Here we find, friends, that the devil does not come back into the house immediately. Why? Because he will not risk being cast out again. So rather than go in himself, he goes on a recruitment trip. And he recruits seven other wickeds, more evil than himself, and they go and now with backups, with reinforcements, this individual that is swept, cleansed, and garnished cannot resist the total onslaught of the enemy. And friends, that's the reason why it's so important for us not to glory in what we do not do, but to glory in what God is doing in us. Amen? Not to pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, I don't do that and this and that anymore, but to ask the Lord that he would work out his sanctifying experience in our life. It's not enough to be emptied of evil. We must be filled with he who is good. Otherwise, the devil will come back with seven other spirits. And friends, I've seen so many casualties of individuals who had been freed from Satan, but because they were not filled with Christ, they became a slave once again. I've been walking with Jesus for the past 15 years. I've been a Christian now for 15 years. And in this great controversy between good and evil, I've seen so many people who uh, were so spiritual fall by the wayside. In fact, some of my own spiritual mentors and spiritual leaders who I looked up to who taught me the Bible and, and would pray for me and with me and, and would train me and mentor me, many of them fallen away. Not because they were doing something wrong, but perhaps because they got self-confident. They were swept and cleansed, but not filled. And therefore, the last state is worse than the first. You see, the Bible warns us here that seven other spirits. Now, when you think of the number seven, what does the number seven represent? It represents perfection. And how is it possible to be freed from the power of perfect possession. It seems like there is no hope once this individual has been overcome the second time. I mean, has anyone ever been freed from seven demons? The answer is yes. There is still hope. And I'm so thankful, friends, that God always leaves us with hope. It's truly a revelation of hope. It was Mary. Remember the story of Mary? She was one that was freed from the power of seven demons, Mary the harlot. She had been consumed. Her life had been in the control of devils. But the Bible tells us that Jesus freed her. Seven demons exited her as she had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And let me read you the description of Mary's experience from the book Desire of Ages. In page 568, it says, listen carefully. Oh, this is so beautiful. And I share this this morning because perhaps there's some here today 
who feel like there's no hope. Some here today who are in the control and dominated by bad habits, and no matter how much you've tried to get out of it, but you failed and fallen on your face time and time again, and you're even sitting here in church tempted to feel like, 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 like you're not worthy and God can't really love you and, and that you might as well give up. Well, listen to these words. When to human eyes her case appeared hopeless. Talking about Mary. When to human eyes her case appeared hopeless, Christ saw in Mary capabilities for good. He saw the better traits of her character. The plan of redemption has invested humanity with great possibilities, and in Mary, these possibilities were to be realized. Through His grace, she became a partaker of the divine nature. The one who had fallen and whose mind had been the habitations of demons was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship and ministry. In others, Christ saw Mary not for who she was outwardly, but He saw her for what she could become by His grace and love. If you would have looked at me 15 years ago, perhaps you would have said, man, that young man is hopeless. Look at him. His eyes bloodshot red all the time, spiritually indifferent. There's no hope for this guy. But I'm thankful that Christ did not see me for who I was, but for what I could become. He saw beyond the exterior. He saw that there was some something good that he wanted to develop in me. And it's the same for each one of us. It was Mary who sat at his feet and learned of him. It was Mary who poured out upon his head the precious anointing oil and bathed his feet with her tears. It was Mary that stood beside the cross and followed him to the sepulcher. It was Mary that was the first at the tomb after the resurrection. And it was Mary, this harlot, this one that was possessed with seven demons. She was the one that God used to preach the first sermon on the resurrection. And then it says, listen, Desire of Ages, I'm still quoting. It says, Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. He knows your situation. You may say, I am sinful, very sinful. You may be, but the worse you are, the more you need Jesus. He turns no weeping contrite ones away. He does not tell any all that he might reveal. In other words, God does not expose us because love covers a multitude of sins. So he sees everything, he knows everything about us, but he does not tell to any all that he could reveal about us, but he bids every trembling soul take courage. Freely he will pardon all who come to him for forgiveness and restoration. And so the Bible tells us, rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. There was an individual that brought me to Christ. I looked up to him physically as well as spiritually. I mean, he was a real tall brother, a very powerful preacher, 
And I remember when I was 16 years old doing drugs, I came to the meetings and he was the one doing the welcome every night. And I remember he would shake my hand at the door and he was a very godly man. And he became an evangelist and he did meetings and I was the Bible worker working under him, being mentored by him. And I would sit at his feet listening to his words, aspiring to maybe preach like him one day. It was so much power. And this individual, unfortunately, he was cleansed. He was swept. He was garnished. But there came a time that he became empty. And as a result, the devil came back and took control of his life. And for 10 years, he was lost in the world. He went back to the filth of sin, and his life was consumed with alcohol. He got involved with a, with a non-Christian, non-Adventist girl, and they had a son together, and they were living together. And I remember not uh, hearing from him for almost a decade, 10 years. And then I would go to his MySpace page, and I saw the pictures of him in the world drinking and partying, and I saw that the glory of God, the glow that he once had, was no longer upon his face, and I would plead on my knees for his soul in prayer. I'd try to send him messages, but he never did respond. He was hiding. He was running. The glow was gone, and it seemed like there was no hope. But then in 2010, after 10 years of being in the world in 2010, I encountered him once again. And it was at an evangelistic meeting in Hawaii. This time, God sent me back home to Hawaii, and I was doing evangelistic meetings in that same church, and now I was the evangelist with the team. And, and I never forget the night that I saw him enter into the doors, and when I saw him, the Holy Spirit came upon me and I started to preach just to him, letting him know that it's all right to come home. And I went way off the topic, but I was preaching to him specifically, letting him know that no matter how long he's been away, that God still loves him. No matter how much he had messed up and made mistakes and how long he had spent in the pig's pen, that there was still room at the Father's table for him. And after that, he started to come back to church. And then later on, he asked me to officiate in his wedding. He and his girlfriend wanted to make things right in the eyes of God. They were living together. They had a son, and so they wanted to make things right. And so I had the privilege of officiating his wedding. Both of them were baptized, and they're married and shortly after that, he sent me a Facebook message, and I want to read you what he wrote to me. Here's what he said. I quote, I thank God every day for you, brother man. I'm glad that he sent you our way to help me. Since the seminar, God has helped me overcome my drinking. I've been a heavy drinker for about 10 years, but now I don't have a craving for it. Thank God for his strength. I humbly ask for your prayers for me this Sabbath as I have the privilege to speak His Word during divine service. Please pray for me and our youth. Thanks again, Pastor, for your faith and the blessing you laid upon my marriage. God bless you and your wife. And now that brother who had become the habitation of seven demons, you can say, he was cleansed and swept in garnish, freed from evil, but then the, the devil came back and controlled him and ruled his life for 10 years. That brother today is preaching God's word and doing ministry for the Lord Jesus. Rejoice not against me, O my, o my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. 
When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. But friends, the point of the message this morning is a very simple point. If you find yourself down and out, just get back up and get filled up because the devil is coming after you. He has a trap prepared for you. He believes he can get you back. He's not going to give up on you. But the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The question this morning as we close is, is Jesus in you? You know, sometimes we're known as a church, as a people who don't do this, that, and the other. We are known for what we do not do. But friends, we have to be known for that which is God is doing in our lives. Are you swept? Are you cleansed? But are you filled? Turn with me now to our last verse in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. <clears throat> you must be filled in order to be fulfilled. You must be saturated with the Spirit in order to be satisfied with salvation. Not enough for us to be empty. But notice what happens in Revelation chapter 3. What, notice what happens when we're filled with Jesus. Revelation 3 verse 20, you see the devil is still going to come back. He's going to come and try and get back in. But notice, if we have been filled with Jesus, in Revelation 3 and verse 20, here's what Christ says. The Bible says, Revelation 3 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Verse 21, to him that what? Overcomes. Will I grant to sit with me on my throne even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Notice here in this passage, friends, that Jesus comes to the man that has been swept and cleansed and emptied. And he comes and he knocks upon the door of our hearts. He comes to the house. The great king would actually come to our house. The king of the universe would condescend. He that is above all would actually come to my house. He does. He knocks at our door. He calls us by name. He doesn't force his way in. He simply says, if you would just open the door and let me into your life. If you do, I will come in and I will have supper with you. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say breakfast or lunch because you can have breakfast or lunch with anybody, but supper, dinner is, is a little bit more intimate. Isn't that right? You have lunch with your coworkers, but you have dinner with your family and your wife. And that's the intimacy of Christ. He, he comes to our door, calls us by name, and wants to have a meal with us a supper with us. And if we let him in, if we open the door of our lives completely, we will then be filled with his fullness. And what happens is this, when the devil comes back and he knocks upon the door of our lives seeking to get in, all we have to do is say to Jesus, Jesus, would you please get the door? <laughs> Jesus, can you take this one? And Jesus says, sure. And he opens the door, and when the devil sees Jesus instead of you, the devil says, I'm sorry, I got the wrong house, and he has to flee. <laughs> <Hey>. <clears throat> mm. 
Because while we are no match for Satan, Satan is no match for Jesus. The devil is mighty, but God is almighty. And the Bible says, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of God will lift up a standard against him. Do you have that standard? At the door of your heart, is Jesus fully in you? It's easy to go to church once a week. It's easy to put on the nice clothes. It's easy to say, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do this and that. But friends, is Jesus truly living his life in you? Christ in you, the hope of glory? And we need to make sure that Jesus is in every room of our lives. Don't just let him into the living room as a passing guest, but allow him to go into the bedroom of your life, into the kitchen, into the closets, to take out all that garbage, all that baggage you've been carrying with you all your life. Jesus, his presence wants to permeate every room of your life. Because listen, friends, if you just let him into the living room, perhaps the enemy can come in through the back door or the bedroom window. But if he is in every room of your life, the devil doesn't stand a chance. So did he get in? Hope is going to come and get ready to sing a song. And as she does, I want you to listen to this story as I close. A story about a man who grew up in the church. And being born and raised in the church, this individual was protected from the sinful ways of the world. He was very sheltered from, from the evil practices by his parents. And, uh, and he grew up in the church, but he was never truly converted to Christ. As an adult, he became a very successful businessman, but he was too busy for God, so he stopped going to church. He didn't lose his belief in the Lord. I mean, he still believed that God was real, but he just was too busy. Not only that, but he comforted himself in the fact that he was a good person. You know, he never did anything wrong. I mean, he was a good citizen. He was faithful to his spouse. He lived a fairly clean life, and so he said, you know, I'm not really a bad person. I'm a good person. He was emptied and swept and garnished. Yet deep down inside, there was something missing. He was cleansed, but he wasn't filled. When his wife announced that she was pregnant, this soon-to-be father was eager to give his daughter, this little girl that was coming, the best advantages in life, the best education, the best opportunities, the best life experiences. But this father never saw church as something that was vital to her growth and development. He said to himself, you know, when she's older, she can choose for herself. What a terrible mistake parents make. Well, one day when this little girl was six years old, he decided to take her to an art museum. It was going to be father-daughter time. It was going to be a very cultural experience, learning the arts. I mean, this father was anxious and eager to teach and to just fill this young mind with everything he knew and to give her exposure to different things. And this little girl was interested and inquisitive to the different paintings that they saw walking through this art museum. And the father felt good being able to explain it to his little girl when suddenly... They passed by a painting on the wall that caught the girl's attention. 
It was a painting of Jesus knocking at the door. The little girl sees it and she stops and she says to her dad, Daddy, who's that? Daddy, who's that? And when that little girl asked the question, that father was slightly convicted, realizing that, wow, the Jesus I grew up learning about, my little girl doesn't even know. And so he gave a quick answer and he said, that's Jesus, hoping that would pacify her curiosity. That's Jesus. And he tried to move on, but then the little girl asked the next question. She said, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? The father had to give more than a quick answer. Well, sweetie, that's God, the creator, the one that makes all things and gives us life. I mean, that's God. And then she asked the next question, why is he knocking on the door? The father had to explain what it meant. Well, this is a picture that represents how, how, how God knocks at the door of our lives because he wants to live in our hearts. And the girl thought about that for a little while and she was thinking about those words when suddenly another question came to her mind and she asked, well, if he's God, why does he have to knock? Why doesn't he just go in? And the father had to explain, well, it's because he doesn't force himself upon us. We have to choose to let him in. And the father was convicted by those own, his own words recognizing that he was ignoring the knock. And then he, she asked the other question. Why don't they let him in? Why don't they open the door? Well, honey, maybe they can't hear him knocking. Maybe the television is too loud. Maybe they're fighting. Maybe there are distractions. I don't know, honey. I don't know why they don't open the door. The father was convicted. He tried to move on to the next painting. But he looked back and saw that his little girl would not move. She was there. She was fixated on this painting of Jesus knocking. And then tears began to run down those little cheeks. The little girl was silent. The father came back. Sweetie, why are you crying? What's wrong? Why are you crying? Little girl said, Daddy, I just started thinking about what you told me about Jesus knocking. And I started thinking about you, Daddy. Daddy, I love you so much. But I'm wondering, Daddy, has Jesus been knocking at your heart? Has he been knocking on your door? And by this time, this father is so convicted. The Holy Spirit is speaking through his little girl. The knock of Christ is loud. Yes, sweetie, I suppose he has been knocking at my heart. He knocks at everyone's heart. And then the last question with tears in her eyes, she said, Daddy, did he get in? Did he get in? And that's the question this morning, friends. Did Jesus get in? You've been coming to church every Sabbath. But did Jesus get in? You've been brought up in a religious household. Your parents are godly parents. But did Jesus get in your heart, young person? 
You stop eating unclean animals. But did Jesus get in? You stopped listening to worldly music and entertainment, but did Jesus get in? Is He living in your life? Is He sitting upon the throne of your heart? Or is there something blocking the door this morning from Jesus getting in? Whatever it is, fling wide the door and say, Jesus, yes, Lord, stop knocking, just come in. Come in and be the Lord of my life. Hover o'er me, Holy Spirit. Bathe my trembling heart and brow. Fill me with your hallowed presence. Come, O oh, come, and fill me now. Thou canst fill me, gracious Spirit, though I cannot tell thee how. But I need thee, greatly need thee. Come, O oh, come, and fill me now. Cleanse and comfort. Bless and save me. Bathe, O oh, bathe my heart and brow. Thou art comforting and saving. Thou art sweetly filling now. If you want Jesus to fill you now, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this sweet invitation. Thank you so much, dear God, for knocking at our door. Thank you for not skipping our house. Thank you, Lord, that you, the King, would actually want to come into our house. Lord, our lives are not fit for the King. Our hearts are so dirty. There's so much baggage and rubbish. But despite that, you still, as a king, want to come to dwell with us. What wondrous love is this? Thank you, dear God, for not being repulsed. Thank you so much for embracing us, despite what we've done that has caused you so much pain. Lord, we recognize and acknowledge our need of Jesus. We have come, Lord, some of us because we are a slave to bad habits, a slave to bitterness and unforgiveness. So others are a slave to addictions or fear, anxiety, guilt. But we believe, Lord, that you have the power over those demons. And we pray in Jesus' name that you'd please set us free, that you'd cleanse us from those evil spirits and that you would give us victory over the devil. That you would please break the chains that bind us. Make us free. We pray for those who are struggling. That they will be free today. Because you promised, Lord, that when the Son of Man shall make us free, we shall be free indeed. So we claim that freedom today. There are others of us, Lord, that are already freed. We're not really doing anything wrong. We're com coming to church and our lives look like they're put in order. We, we're garnished. We, we have the cosmetics. But we recognize that it's not enough. We've lived our lives when our spiritual gas tank is on empty. And today we pray that you would fill us now with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with your presence. Fill us, dear God, with you. 
And I pray that you will help us to understand that only when we're filled are we fulfilled. It's only then that we can be satisfied. So Lord, would you please stop knocking? Come into our hearts today. Live out thy life within us, O Jesus, King of Kings. Make our hearts your throne. And I pray, Lord, dear God, we pray that you would remove all the baggage that we've been carrying with us all our lives. Clean out the, the, the closets of all the cobwebs and make us the people you want us to be. Bless us, Lord. And Lord, I want to pray also for those who are filled but want to be overflowing want to be used by you to be a blessing to others making ourselves available to be used as as Bible workers and as evangelists in our own sphere of influence in the context of our own work and profession and school Lord please use us fill us and I pray we pray that the blessing of Jesus will overflow through us and touch those around us thank you so much dear God for those of us who are in our seats, Lord, we commit our lives to you as well. And we pray, dear God, that you would truly lift up that standard in our hearts so that when the enemy comes in like a flood, we will be fortified by your Spirit. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Forgive us, Lord, for our shortcomings, our sins. Forgive us, Lord, for our emptiness. And be with us now as we leave this place not from your presence, but with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.